following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. This morning's scripture passage is Psalm 138. Also, if you do not have a Bible, feel free to take one of those black hardback Bibles home with you as a gift from Park Church. Psalm 138, a Psalm of David. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning, Park Church. Good morning. Ooh, look at that response. Wow, that was pretty good. Uh, My name is Luke. We're going to be continuing our summer series in the Psalms today. And we have arrived at Psalm 138. 138, which seems like an ordinary psalm on first blush. Seems pretty normal. It's a typical, you know, it seems like, oh, this is just a a typical psalm of David, right? Where it's kind of like, yay, God is cool, and he saved me. Hooray, the end. That's what it seems like on the surface level, on surface level. But when we dig a little bit deeper, we're going to see that there's so much more to the psalm than just that. There's so much more. Because hidden in Psalm 138, there's a brilliant, a brilliant study of God's mission to the world through evangelism, through evangelism. Now, I realize that for many of us, uh, the word evangelism, when you hear that word, it perhaps maybe leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Because perhaps maybe you're thinking, evangelism, uh, again, gross. Those Christians, those Christians, they're always getting into people's business. They're always getting into my business, trying to proselytize and like telling everyone like, hey, repent or go to hell type of deal. Oh, I'm sick of evangelism. Maybe that's some of you. Or perhaps some of you are thinking, ugh, I remember when my church or my college fellowship forced me to evangelize by like walking around campus or walking around the beach or walking around the community and like cold calling like strangers and telling them, and like, hey, do you want to talk about, you know, Jesus and that sort of thing? And, and like, man, that was the worst. That stunk. I hated doing that. I hated wandering around and just like randomly knocking on doors. And yet others of you might be thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. But evangelism, man, that's what we pay, like, pastors and missionaries to do. And so, because it's their job, I'm exempt. I'm exempt, so I don't have to do it. And so, kind of going into this message, I recognize the, the baggage and, and kind of, you know, I understand the baggage that this word, evangelism, carries for many of us. 
However, if you're someone that feels like fear or revulsion or indifference about evangelism, then I'd like to suggest that perhaps, just maybe, you were taught incorrectly about evangelism. Maybe you were taught wrong. Because being on the mission of God through evangelism is the greatest, it is the highest, and is the most exciting call in the world for the Christian. And in this text, David shows us this in three ways. He shows this to us in three ways. Go ahead and hit the next slide. Number one, he talks about his own conversion. David talks about his conversion. Number two, he talks about his company, his company. And number three, his confession, his confession. So first, David's conversion. Second, David's company. And third, David's confession. And we'll, un- we'll unpack these in just a moment. But the main point that I hope that we see this morning is that the greatest joy, the greatest privilege in the world is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with our friends. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to pause for a moment just to sit in your presence and to declare that you are God, that you are faithful, that you are good to us. And Lord, right now, as we wrestle with this idea, as we think about evangelism, Lord, we pray that we be a people that respond to your call for us as Christians. Lord, may we be a people that listen clearly. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be here this morning, that you would show us your face, that our eyes would be opened to your heart. Lord, we pray that we would respond to your goodness, how kind, how nice you were to us. And in response, Lord, that we would do something about it, that we would just, that that your joy, the joy that we have because of you, that it would just become infectious, that we would just want to share you with those around us because of your great love for us. So, Lord, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would be here right now in our midst, that you would anoint this time that you would set aside these next 25 minutes, Lord, for your glory. And Lord, I just pray that the words that come out of my mouth would not be mine, but rather yours instead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, next slide, first point. David's conversion. David's conversion. If you'll recall from last week, we went over Psalm 137. Psalm 137. And if you'll recall, it was an imprecatory psalm. Imprecatory, meaning that it was a psalm of pain and lament. Pain and lament. The previous psalmist in Psalm 137 was in a place of deep hurt, a place of deep anger. And he was in a place where he couldn't even speak or sing of God's goodness anymore. He couldn't even talk about God anymore. But in this passage, in the very next psalm, this psalmist, who is probably David, is praising God with his whole heart. He's praising God with his whole heart. What happened? So the question is like, what happened? How did this happen? Like, why the drastic and sudden turnaround from being unable to sing his praises to suddenly praising God with his whole heart? 137 to 138. The giveaway is in verse 1. Let's read verse 1 again. I give thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. David came to a stunning realization. A stunning realization. And he realized that all the other gods in his life were worthless. 
He was defiantly proclaiming in the face of all the other little g-gods in his life that the Lord God Yahweh is his king and he would serve no other but him. For David, those gods, those little g-gods, they could have been the Canaanite gods, like, like maybe like Baal or Asherah or Molech and the like, possibly the Canaanite gods. But they could have also been gods such as money or power or sex or popularity or career or your looks or relationships or sports or the like. And these gods, those gods, those are our modern day gods, aren't they? Those are our modern day gods. And not, again, no, don't get me wrong, please, because none of those gods are inherently bad. It's not bad to have a career or to value it. It's not bad to value your looks. It's not bad to value relationships. It's not bad to value sports. That's not bad. But the Bible teaches us that we have the tendency to make good things ultimate things. We have the tendency to take good, the good things of our lives and make them ultimate things. We have the tendency to reduce God and, and, and to put these good things on the throne of our hearts. We kick God off the throne and we put these other good things on the thrones, thrones of our hearts. And unfortunately, while all those things were good things, none of them, none of the things of this world make good gods to us. When I was a freshman in college, uh, I went to, I was a missionary kid, so I lived overseas, and so I came back to the States for college. And so when I came back, uh, I went to this school where I didn't know anybody. Like, I didn't know anybody at this school. I didn't have any friends, and so I was, like, super lonely my, you know, the beginning of my freshman year. And so I was like, I, I need friends. I need friends. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm going to have to, I need friends so bad. And, and so because, like, so I was like, what am I going to do? So I was that, like, try-hard, like, pick-me guy that, like, wanted everybody to think I was cool. I need everybody to think I'm cool because that way I'm going to have some friends. I wasn't that good at it, but somehow I managed to make my school volleyball team. I made my school volleyball team. I wasn't very good, but I made the team. So, like an idiot, I decided that the best way for me to flex like, the best way for me to get acceptance and attention was to let everybody around me know that I played volleyball for my school. So, I was like, I would always, like, walk around campus, like, flaunting my, like, volleyball gear. Like, oh, hey, look, I play for the school. Did you see that? See? See my emblem? See? I play volleyball. And I walked around every day trying to be cool, hoping to receive, like, love and acceptance and attention because I could put a little round ball over this little net. That's what I was hoping would be the means by which I would have, like, love and acceptance. I thought to myself, I've got no friends here. I've got no family here. I've got no community here. But at least I've got volleyball. Volleyball, therefore, is going to be the source of my happiness. It's going to be the source of my joy. So I began finding my identity and my self-worth in volleyball. Everything I did revolved around volleyball. It became my effective God, little g-god. But one day, during preseason practice, I went up for a block. I was on the net. I went up for a block, 
and the set on the other side of the net was pretty tight. It was right on the net. It was a little bit over on my side of the net. And the hitter on the other team, actually, I guess he was on my team, but the hitter on the other side of the net, he went for the ball, but he came underneath the net. And so, while I was in the air, I saw him coming under the net, and oh, great, what am I going to do about this? So I ended up falling on his foot, and I severely sprained my ankle. When, I came, when he came under the net, I fell on his foot, I sprained my ankle. And, you know, I went to the doctor, and the doctor said it was one of those sprains where it's better, if it, it would have been better had it been broken rather than severely sprained the way that it was. And so, I was on crutches for weeks. And then after that, I was in PT, or I was in physical therapy for months. Like, I still get stressed out when I see those, like, little resistance bands, you know what I'm talking about? I still, still get PTSD from that. So... When my spring season, my freshman year spring season started, when volleyball season started, I was maybe like 60, 70%, so I couldn't like move around or jump as well, as well as I could or should have. And so, because I wasn't very good, because I was injured, I sat the bench. I sat the bench. I barely got any game time. And when I did get game time, I was under so much pressure to play well that I performed like garbage. I was so bad. I was like so nervous, like, I got to do well, I got to do well, I got to do well. And then I would blow it every time. And so because of this, I had an identity crisis. I had an identity crisis. Because in my mind, I said to myself, but I'm Luke the volleyball player. I'm Luke the volleyball player. But what am I worth if I can't play volleyball? I wasn't just sad or disappointed. My world was shattered when I got injured. My world was shattered. I got depressed. I was anxious. I was confused. I was lonely. And I was utterly lost. And so do you see what I did there? Do you kind of see what I did? I took a good thing in my life, which was volleyball, and I made it an ultimate thing. I made it my God. I didn't just love volleyball. I made it my God because I was trying to get all of my love, all of my joy, all of my hope from the sport, from volleyball. I asked it to be God to me. I asked volleyball to be my God. I asked it to fill a void in my heart that only God could fill. So when I got injured and I lost volleyball, I wasn't just sad. I lost who I was. And so I was totally crushed. I was utterly crushed. I did not understand what David realized in verse 1. When we put anything, anything in this world on the throne of our hearts other than God, it will collapse and take our hearts down with it. Let me repeat that. When we put anything on the throne of our hearts other than God, it will collapse and take our hearts down with it with it. So my question is, what have you put on the throne of your heart? What have you put on the throne of your heart? What do you need that you can't live without? What do you need in your life? What's the thing that you say, I can't live a happy life if I don't have blank? What is that thing? What is that blank for you? I want to encourage you. Reevaluate the possible gods, little g gods in your life. Reevaluate them. And consider who or what might be sitting on the throne of your heart and ask yourself, 
if it's sitting in the right seat. That's our first point. Next slide, second point, David's company. David's company. So, David realizes that the little g gods in his life are no good. They're no good. They're worthless. They're not going to satisfy. They're not going to do anything for him. So how does he respond? How does David respond to this information? Now that he knows that these little g gods, they're not going to suffice. What does he do? How does he respond? David shares it. He shares it. Let's read verses 4 and 5. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. The kings of the earth give thanks and sing praises to God because, quote, they heard the words of his mouth, of God's mouth. They heard God's word. Notice how the words of God's mouth cause these kings to celebrate. They celebrate. They're singing. They're giving thanks. God's word brings joy. God's word brings joy. These people heard God's good news, so they broke out in song. And so the question is then, how? How? How did they hear of God's good news of great joy? How did they hear about it? The answer is because David told them. David told them. He shared with the kings of the earth. He shared with these kings the good news of God. He shared with them the gospel. Because David was a king. David was a king. He was the world leader of the most prosperous kingdom in the ancient Near East of the time, at the time. And so, he was a peer to all the other world leaders of his day. He was a peer to them. They were in his sphere of influence. In our youth group, in Park Students, we call our spheres of influence our oikos. Our oikos. Because oikos in the Greek is the word for family, home, household, and people group. Uh, It's what the yogurt brand, they stole this word, right? Home, family, household, people group. And we believe that God has supernaturally and strategically placed a small group of people, our oikos, on the front row of our lives. And God has tasked us with the joyful and awesome responsibility of sharing his good news with our oikos. Let me try and illustrate it like this. Um, I have a student in our youth group who lived out this oikos principle. So a couple years ago, when when I first got here, um, this student of ours, we're just going to call her, I don't know, we'll call her Banana Lee. We'll call her Banana Lee. Invited, Banana Lee invited her best friend to youth group. Don't shake your head at me, Sam. I see you. She invited her best friend to youth group a couple years ago. And they kind of like, and so they were best friends. So like, they went to the same school, they had the same friends, and so they've been friends for like years since elementary school. And so because they were friends, their moms became friends. And so soon, like the families started kind of like hanging out together. And so the friend, so what happened was, that friend started coming regularly to youth group. And soon, after about a year, she started like dragging her little brother to youth group as well. And so he started coming to youth group. Then what happened was, a few months ago, the two of them were like, hey, uh, 
we really like Jesus, and we want to give him our lives entirely, so we want to get baptized. And so the brother and the sister that were brought to youth group, they got baptized. And then as a function of that, uh, their mom started coming to Park Church. And then after that, the two of them started inviting their friends, their oikos, to youth group. And so now they're starting to like come and check out youth group as well. And so do you see what happened there? Do you see kind of what happened? A couple years ago, my student started a chain reaction. She started a chain reaction. She said to her friend, hey, uh, I I go to this like small, kind of weird youth group, and like everyone's like super weird and kind of like annoying, but uh, do you want to come anyway? And of course, her friend was like, yeah, sure, I'll go. What do I have to lose? She offered, so my, my student offered the invitation, and since she already had social capital with her friend, because again, they've been BFFs since they were little, her friend was just like, yeah, sure, why not? Why not? I'll go. In a study done by the former president and CEO of Lifeway, Tom Rayner, he discovered that 82%, 82% of unchurched people in America are at least somewhat likely to attend church if invited. 82% of unchurched people are, are somewhat likely, somewhat likely to attend church if someone invites them. But also, unfortunately, in a separate Barna study, it was discovered that 73% of unchurched adults in America have never been invited to church their whole lives. 73%. Even though 82%, they would probably go. They would probably come. The truth is that all of us, every person in this room has an oikos. Everyone has a sphere of influence in this room. We all have family. We all have friends. We all have coworkers. We all have classmates. We all have teammates. We all have neighbors in our lives, on the front row of our lives. And many of those people, many of those people in our oikoses are unfortunately turning to their little g-gods for hope and for meaning, not even realizing they have an alternative. All of us have friends that say something along, along the lines of, my life would be complete only if I had a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or, you know, a, a car like this or a house like this or, or a job like this or a career like this. All of us have friends like that. We all have loved ones that are spinning in circles. They're spinning, desperate for fulfillment but actually empty on the inside. And the truth is, all of us already have a platform in their lives because they're already our friends. God supernaturally and strategically already placed them in the front row of our lives because they're our coworkers and our neighbors and our friends and they hang out in our friend group. So the question then is, what are you going to do with your platform? You already have the platform. That's already given. So the question is, What are you going to do with it? How will you use the platform that you have? How will you leverage it? Are you going to use it for yourself? Or are you going to keep quiet? Or are you not going to to leverage it? Or, Or could you leverage it for something extremely, infinitely meaningful and eternal? That's our second point. Next slide, last point. David's confession. David's confession. So let's go back to David. Let's go back to David for a second. 
Let's imagine that one day, David, who's, you know, just chilling on his throne, and he gets a memo. He gets a message from, uh, from uh, a courier. And the message says, hey, you're invited to a banquet at this other king's castle or house or whatever. So he gets invited to a banquet. By, you know, maybe it was thrown by one of his allies. Okay, one of his allies throws a banquet. And so David shows up. Imagine that he's sitting at a table with a bunch of other world leaders, with a bunch of other kings. And maybe these world leaders are like, they're schmoozing him. They're like super schmoozing him since Israel's military and economic might was outstripping everybody else in the world at the time. And let's just pretend that one of the world leaders asks him, while he's like schmoozing him a little bit, you know, so he asks David, hey, David, or hey, King David, hey, your majesty, uh, how did you do it? How'd you do it? What was your secret? How'd you go from nothing to the greatest world power in the Near East? How'd you do it? David probably responded something like this. Let's read verses six and seven. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. Notice how David didn't respond by talking about, like, military strategy or technological advancement or political agendas or social policies. That's not what gave David his success. That's not what caused his success. Instead, David talked about how God loved him and rescued him, even though he didn't deserve it. I'm just a shepherd boy. Like, for real. I'm just a shepherd boy. I got seven older brothers who are more qualified and more capable than me. And also, for my entire life, like, literally everybody and everything wanted me dead. Like, so first, I was like a shepherd, and these, like, lions and tigers and bears all tried to, like, kill me. And then, like, I was, like, the, the previous king of Israel, his name was King Saul, dirtbag. He tried to, like, kill me, too. He, like, took his army, wah, tried to kill me. And then, man, those Philistines, those guys on the coast, those guys were the worst. Oh, they tried to kill me constantly, too. And then, oh, let me tell you about my, about my son, Absalom. Man, that was bad. He tried to kill me, too. Everyone has tried to kill me, like my entire life. I had nothing going for me, and I was as good as dead. But I serve a God who loves me and has been very good to me. And he gave me a hope and a future that I did not deserve. David confessed to his oikos about his brokenness, about his pain, about his shortcomings. It says, you know, he says that he walked in the midst of trouble, but then he showed them how God saved him and took care of him through everything, through all the pain, through all the trials, through all the difficulty, God took care of him. This was David's testimony. It was his testimony, which was, I'm as good as dead. I'm as good as dead, but God himself lifted me up out of the mire. And I believe that David would want us to share our testimonies with our oikos, just like he did, just like David did. Because of our sin, like David, we were also as good as dead. We were as good as dead because our sin separated us from God. 
And, and we may have turned to other little G gods to try, try and find hope, to try and find satisfaction, but only to discover none of those things could do it. None of them could carry the weight of our hope. But when Jesus died on the cross for us, he offered all of us a trade. He offered all of us a cosmic exchange. And he said to each of us, hey, hey, I will take the sin and the brokenness and the death that you deserve And I'll take that upon myself. And I'm going to give you the joy and the hope and the love and the righteousness that that I deserved. I'll trade you. And God, and the Bible says that this is offered to anyone who ABCs, ABCs. If anyone A, admits their brokenness, admits their failure, admits that the little G gods in their life do not cut it. B, if anyone, B, believes that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead, that he is the only hope, he is the only way to the Father. And C, if anyone chooses to follow him with all of their hearts for all of their days. If anyone, A, B, C's, admits, believes, and chooses, then this trade can happen. We get God's, we get Jesus' righteousness, joy, and life, and he takes our sin, brokenness, and death upon himself. So to conclude, if you'll recall, um, my freshman volleyball season was a disaster. It was a disaster. I was injured, I was benched, and I was broken. But then I remembered Jesus. I remembered Jesus. And I realized how foolish I was putting my hope and my identity in a sport. In a sport. And so I repented. I repented. I ABC'd. I admitted my sin. I believed in Jesus again, and I chose once again to follow after him. And I asked Jesus to sit on the throne of my heart once again. And it wasn't overnight. It wasn't overnight, but it it didn't take too long for my life to totally turn around. My depression, my anxiety, my sadness, it, it all went away. It was gone because... I didn't care if volleyball was going well or not. Volleyball, which was my God, was no longer my God. And so it didn't matter how well it was going anymore because my hope was in Jesus, not in how well I performed on the court anymore. And since I didn't care about how I performed on the court anymore, I was just having fun out there. I was just having fun when I played. And so I ended up playing like way better because I was having fun. There wasn't any pressure on me anymore. And so my sophomore season of volleyball, I ended up starting. I don't know how that happened. I wasn't very good. I ended up starting, and I had like, this amazing season where I was second in kills on my team. It wasn't fair because the guy that got first in kills, he was like 6'8", so it wasn't fair. But uh, I got second in kills, and so I had like a breakout, amazing sophomore season. It was the best, and I was like, yeah, this is awesome. I could keep doing this with my hope in the Lord. That's totally great. But... A couple weeks after, like literally it was two weeks after my sophomore season ended, I went to one day in Tennessee. And I worshiped the Lord with Charlie Hall, and I listened to a guy named John Piper. And John Piper read from this like Reader's Digest. I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. Reader's Digest. I think that's what like old people read or something. He read from a Reader's Digest about this retired couple, this retired couple who spends their retirement collecting seashells all day, every day. 
And he asked me, actually he asked 40,000 of us, but me included, John Piper asked us, how are you going to spend your life? How are you going to spend your life? Are you going to be collecting seashells for the rest of your life? Are you going to be just focusing on volleyball for the rest of your life? Or, or are you going to live for something greater? Even though I just had the best volleyball season ever, that day was the end of my volleyball career. And if that had happened just a few weeks prior or a few months prior, I would have been even more sad, even more depressed, but I wasn't. I wasn't whatsoever. It was pure joy hanging him up because I knew that God had called me to a life of joy and adventure and significance because I would be spending the rest of my life sharing Jesus with my friends. So I'd like to close by asking you what John Piper asked me all those years ago. What are you living your life for? What are you living your life for? Are you living your life for the gods of this world, the little G gods of this world? Your career, a relationship, money, success, wealth? What are you living your life for? Or are you living your life for something greater? Again, the things of this world are good, but I want to encourage you. Spend your life on the things that matter Spend your life on the things that matter. And I'd like to suggest that one way of doing that is by finding opportunities to share how good God has been to you with your oikos. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I confess that I'm so bad at this. I'm so bad at it. I, I, Lord, how many times have I kicked you off the throne of my heart and put something else on. How often do I do that? Whether it was volleyball, just whatever it was. And even to this day, I still like, oh, cool. I'm, you're the prodigal father that takes me back. And then I just like run from you again. God, I do it all the time. And I'm so sorry. I pray that you'd forgive me. But Lord, I pray that you'd help me. And I pray that you'd help all of us in this room be a people that remember that the gods of this world, that the things of this life, while good, don't make good gods just don't make good gods, and they can't support the weight of our hope. But Jesus, you can. You can and you do. And when we give our lives to you, when we utterly surrender and sacrifice ourselves to you, oh Lord, you, it, you carry that so well, and we get to live full and complete, meaningful, joyful, adventuresome lives. And so God, we pray that you would help us see and recognize our idolatry sometimes, but Lord, may we be a people that are so, I don't know, enwrapped, enveloped, so joyful, so thankful for what you've done for us, how you've been so patient with us, how you've been so good to us. May that fill us up so much with joy that we overflow, and we just want to share that with, with our oikos, with those, with other people in our lives, the people that you have supernaturally and strategically placed on the front row of our lives that we already have social capital with. And so, Lord, may we be faithful and do that. May we be a people that do that. May we respond well to your goodness and your grace to us by sharing it with others. So, God, go before us right now, especially as we prepare our hearts for a time of communion. Lord, prepare our hearts now even for the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.